What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. faced with impossible situations. An impossible situation is a situation where you don't have the ability to change it, to fix it, to overcome it. And there are many situations and needs that, that we face uh, on a daily basis that you know we just don't have what is needed in order to meet the situation that we are faced with. And, you know, it can be a disease that we can't heal ourselves from. It can be a financial crisis that that we don't have the money to get out of. It can be a difficult person in our life that that we don't have the ability to change them or to to change their heart. It can just be a hard situation that we don't have the, the wisdom or the knowledge to know what to do. And so we often face impossible situations and you know that's something that Jesus's disciples faced as well that they encountered the impossible on a regular basis and there were situations where you know they didn't have what was needed to meet the need they didn't have in themselves what they needed in order to deal with the situation that they faced and this morning as we come to John chapter 6 we're going to look at one of those impossible situations that the disciples are faced with. Something that in and of themselves, they can't meet the need. The need is far too great. It is an impossible need for them to be able to deal with. And that need, that impossible situation is feeding thousands of people. Now we're going to see that, that Jesus, he's going to meet this impossible Need And when Jesus does that, the, the multitude that is blessed by that now has an opportunity to respond to the way in which Jesus deals with this situation. And so as we look at the impossible situation that the disciples are faced with and that the multitude is blessed with, the main thing I want us to focus on are the responses both of the disciples and the multitude. Uh, The response that they have to the impossible situation and the response that they have to Jesus doing the impossible for them. You see, with every impossible situation that we face, you know, we have a moment to respond before the situation and also a response after God does the impossible. And so what we look at with the disciples and what we look at with the multitude is going to be something very applicable to us, that we would learn how we should and shouldn't respond when we face impossible situations, but also how we should and shouldn't respond after God does the impossible for us in both of those situations hopefully will help us to respond the right way. The next time that we face an impossible situation or the next time we see God do something impossible in and through us in a situation that we encounter, that we would respond the way that He would want us to respond. 
Well, the beginning of John chapter 6 sets the stage for the impossible situation that the disciples are going to face. And so let's see what it says. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says this. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. So Jesus travels over the Sea of Galilee and there's this great multitude of people that follow Jesus and his disciples. And, and here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee from the east side. And so Jesus and his disciples, they've gone over the Sea of Galilee, and now they're at this uh, place where it's the plain of Bethesda, and it's located there right on your picture. And here's a, a close-up picture of Bethesda Plain. And as you can see, the Sea of Galilee is in the background. And the Gospels tell us that this was a, a deserted place. So there's not much there at this time when Jesus is there. And as you can see, not much has changed uh, since the time of Jesus to now. It's still a deserted place. And this is important because in this deserted place, you know, there's no real place to go and get food. If you have a big crowd of people there, you know, how are you going to feed thousands of people in a place like this. And so they just sailed over the Sea of Galilee. They come to this uh, place and this great multitude has followed them. And we're told the reason that the multitude is following Jesus is because they've just seen all these miracles, all these signs that Jesus has done. And I'm sure many of the people there were people that needed to be touched, needed to be healed. You know, they see Jesus do miracles and like, man, here's the guy that we want to follow. And so this large multitude of people is now following Jesus and coming to where Jesus and his disciples are. And we're told that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now, if you ever have the privilege of going to the nation of Israel and during a, doing a tour, it's a wonderful experience. But something that you will note is when the Bible uses this terms mountain, you know, we think of something here, you know, we think of something quite large. And you, you get there, you realize, yeah, actually, it's just kind of a big hill. Uh, and so here, as we see, this is kind of the top part, the highest point uh, in this plain. And so this is most likely where Jesus would have gone. He walks up to this top point. He sits down. His disciples kind of gather around him. Uh, and something important to note as we get into this is the disciples have been with Jesus for a while now. They have seen Jesus do the impossible. They have seen Jesus heal. They have seen Jesus do all sorts of things where they would stand back and just be blown away by his miraculous power, that they've experienced that. And you actually, Luke and Mark's gospel reveal to us that right before this instance, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, and he empowered them to do miracles. He empowered them to cast out demons. And so these guys have just come back from God empowering them to do amazing things. So not only have they seen Jesus do the impossible, they've also experienced Jesus doing the impossible in and through their own lives. And so I think it's important to, to keep that in mind as we come to this new impossible situation that the disciples are going to face. Something for us to remember is that we, like the disciples, have seen Jesus do miraculous things. You know, the greatest miracle there is, is for Jesus to save you from your sins, to save you from the ultimate consequence of your sin, which is hell. You know, that's the greatest miracle, the most important miracle of all, that, that our lives can be transformed and in our eternity 
can be transformed. And so we, like the disciples, have seen Jesus do the impossible many times, and we've also seen Him do the impossible in and through our lives. If nothing else, just salvation alone. And so we have a lot in common with these disciples. Now you would think that after everything that the disciples have experienced so far, after all the things that they've seen Jesus do, all the impossible stuff, all the miracles, and just the fact that they themselves have had Jesus work through them. They've seen people get healed as they prayed for Him. They've seen demons get cast out as they rebuked them. They've just experienced this. You would think that, man, it wouldn't be hard to trust Jesus to do the impossible after having experienced all of this stuff. They've seen Jesus do it time and time again. But what we're going to see here in the disciples is something that unfortunately is is way too common in our own lives. Even though the disciples have continually seen Jesus do the impossible, when faced with a new impossible situation, they fail to trust Jesus to deal with it. Can you guys relate to that? Have there ever been times in your own life where you know, you've seen Jesus do the impossible for you, but now a new situation arises, a new impossible situation, and you struggle with trusting Him even though He's already done something similar in the past, even though He's already come through for you at another point in time. But this new situation, it's difficult to trust Him. You know, I know I've done that many times in my life. God has done the impossible so many times in my life. He's never let me down. But sadly to say, you know, there are times that I encounter new impossible situations, and even though his track record is perfect, there are still times that I struggle trusting. Well, well, are you going to come through this time? Are you going to be able to deal with this new situation that I face? You know, one example of this in my life personally is with mission trips. You know, I've been on over 20 different mission trips to all sorts of different countries in the world. And with each mission trip, I've never had the money to pay for them. You know, normally they're, you know, a couple thousand dollars to go. And, you know, I've never had, you know, the spare money of like, oh, yeah, I can just afford to, to pay for that myself. It's always been for me, that's an impossible situation. There's no way that I'm going to come up with, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, whatever the amount is. But you know what? With every mission trip that I've ever been on, God's provided. And you would think after, you know, the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth time that God has provided every single time, that after that I would never struggle. I'd be like, all right, God, you've already done it so many times. I know that the next mission trip that I want to do, you'll provide for. But sadly, when I look through and I look back, you know, there's times like, oh, well, this one costs more than the last one. Lord, can you handle the extra thousand? Can you deal with it? And, and even though he's been faithful with impossible situations in the past, I find myself time and time again struggling with the new impossible situation that I'm faced with. Well, the disciples are in that boat. They've experienced Jesus doing the impossible for them, doing the impossible through them, but now they have a new situation that is impossible before them. And let's see how they respond to this new impossible situation and what we can learn. Well, their first response to this impossible situation is actually in Mark's Gospel. And so let's see what Mark's Gospel reveals about this. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 35, it says this, When the day was now far spent, His disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. 
So here's the impossible situation that now the disciples are faced with, that this multitude of people that has followed them, they need food. John's Gospel tells us there are about 5,000 men, so that's not including women and children. So there could have been about 10, 15, 20,000 people that are there in this place. And we're told, when the day was now far spent... They've been there listening to Jesus teach. They've been watching Jesus heal. And now the day is far spent. It's late. It's after dinner time. They're hungry. And, you know, there's nowhere to eat. It's a deserted place. So the impossible situation the disciples are faced with is how do we feed thousands of people here in this deserted place? Well, the disciples are going to respond in three different ways to this impossible situation. And unfortunately, each response is going to be the wrong response. So the disciples are going to be one of those examples of what not to do. So when you look at them, you might you know, recognize, yeah, I do that as well. Well, they shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. These are wrong things that they're doing. But we can still learn from their wrong situations and also note what the right response would have been. Well, notice the first way that the disciples respond is they come to Jesus and they tell him to send the multitude away. Jesus, just get rid of the multitude. Because you know what? If they're gone, then we have no one to have to feed. And so now our possible situation is now removed. We don't have to worry about it anymore because the multitude will be gone. So the first wrong way the disciples respond to this impossible situation is they ask Jesus to get rid of the impossible situation instead of asking Jesus to get them through it. You know, too often when we're faced with impossible situations, we respond in the same wrong way. We respond by asking God to get rid of the situation, to get rid of what's going on, to get rid of what's impossible in front of us. And oftentimes, like the disciples, we're asking God to get rid of people. Because when you look at so many of your impossible situations that you face, you know, oftentimes it's, it's surrounded with people. And so, Lord, just get rid of these people, and then the situation's gone, and now we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. You know, as a pastor, I've encountered some pretty messed up people over the years. You know, people that are, are really hard to deal with. And sadly, you know, there have been times that I have prayed, Lord, can you remove this person from my life? God, please just get rid of them. I'm tired of them. They're such a drain in my life. They're so difficult. They're just so hard to deal with. And God challenged me to stop asking for him to, to get rid of those people, but instead to ask, Lord, help me minister to them. Lord, give me patience for them. Lord, help me to love them more. Not get rid of them out of my life, but help me to, to do something to help them grow because obviously they're difficult because they got problems and they need someone to invest and impact their life for you. You know, running from impossible situations and asking God to get rid of them is not the way He wants us to respond to the impossible situations we face. We serve the God of the impossible. He loves to do the impossible in your life, and He just wants you to ask Him, hey, Lord, do that. Get me through this. Not get me out of this. Not remove it from my life, but get me through this situation. So the wrong way the disciples respond to their impossible situation is by asking Jesus to get rid of it. The right response would have been asking Jesus to get them through it. Now we're going to see the second wrong response the disciples have in verses 4-7. through seven. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, 
Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. So Jesus' disciples are faced with this impossible situation of feeding thousands of people. And notice what Jesus then says to one of the disciples, Philip. He says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, I believe that Jesus specifically directs this question to Philip as opposed to Matthew or Peter or John, because the Gospels tell us this is where Philip grew up. This is his hometown. So I think this is a practical question. Philip, you're from here. Where's a good place that we can go and buy bread for this multitude of people to eat? Now, notice verse 6, because it reveals something very important about this question from Jesus. But this he said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. See, this question for Philip was a, was a test. It wasn't Jesus posing this because he's really actually wanting to know, you know, well, where's the best place to, to buy fruit? You know, is it, is it H-E-B over here, Kroger down the road? Here? But where are we going to go get food for this crowd of people? Now, this is a test for Philip to see how Philip's going to respond. And we're told that Jesus knew what he's going to do. He already knows how he's going to respond. He already knows what he's going to do in this situation, but he wants to see where Philip is at. Now, this isn't a test to reveal something to Jesus about Philip. He's not asking this because he's like, you know what? I'm not sure what Philip's going to do here. I'm not sure how Philip's going to respond. So, so let me pose this question to kind of see how Philip will deal with this. Jesus knows exactly what Philip's going to do. So this test isn't to reveal something to Jesus about Philip. This test is to reveal something to Philip about Jesus. This test is for Philip's benefits. It's for Philip's learning, not for Jesus's benefit or for Jesus's learning. You know, there was an older couple who had a son in his 30s. He was still living with them. Some of you might still uh, recognize the, the difficulty of that. And their parents were a little worried. This person was still unable to decide, you know, what his future job and career was going to be. So the father decided to do a test. I got the perfect thing to discover what the future career of my son will be. And so he puts a note on the kitchen table, and next to the note he put a $100 bill, he put a Bible, and he put a bottle of whiskey. Then he says to his wife, you know what, okay, we need to hide here and, and pretend that we're not home, and if our son takes the money, he's going to be a businessman. If he takes the Bible, he's going to be a pastor. And if he takes the bottle of whiskey, I'm afraid our son will be a no-good drunkard. So they hide in the closet and they're waiting for their son to come home and their son comes home and he reads the note and he takes the hundred dollar bill and he makes sure that, you know, it's real and he puts that in his pocket and he flips through the Bible and then he takes a swig of the whiskey and he takes all three of them and goes back to his room. The father slaps his forehead and says, this is worse than I could have ever imagined. His wife says, what? Our son's going to be a politician. In that story, the parents try to find out something about their son, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not asking this question because he's like, I don't have a clue what Philip's going to do. He knows what Philip's going to do, but you know what? In the same way, he tests us. Not so that he can discover things about us, but that we can discover things about him, that we could learn about ourselves and learn about him through these tests. Well, now we're going to see Philip failed the test. But you know what? Failing the test for Philip doesn't keep him from learning. 
And I think that's an important thing for us because sometimes we feel like, oh man, if I fail, it's such a horrible thing. Yeah, well, we don't like to fail, but you know what? Even in failure, you can learn. Because even in Philip's failure, Jesus is still going to give him the answer. Jesus is still going to show, well, this is how you should have responded. This is what you should have done. Look what I'm going to do to help you see for next time when you're faced with the same situation. Hopefully this failure and the understanding of what the answer truly was will help you to do better in the future. And so when you and I fail, recognize, you know what, we can still learn. We can learn from our failure. For some of us, that's the best way we learn. So for some of us, maybe that's the only way we learn. But the bottom line is, you know what, even in failure, we can still discover what God wants from us. So let's see how Philip responds to Jesus' test in verse 7. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Notice how Philip answers the question of Jesus. Philip, you know, where are we going to go to buy bread for these thousands of people? And basically he says, you know what, Jesus, it doesn't matter where we go. Because the amount of money that we have and the amount of money that we would take to feed these people, we don't have enough to do it. We don't have the money. Even if we had, you know, the store right down the street here, we wouldn't have enough to buy for thousands of people the kind of uh, food that they would need. So Jesus tests Philip in this possible situation, and, and Philip fails the test. And the reason that Philip fails the test is he looks to money instead of to Jesus to solve his situation. The right answer would have been something like, hey, we don't need money with you here, Jesus. We've seen all that you can do. We know that you can do the impossible. David Guzik wrote this. Philip might have said, Master, I don't know where the food is to feed this crowd, but you were greater than Moses, whom God used to feed a multitude every day in the wilderness, and God can certainly do a lesser work through a greater servant. You were greater than Elisha, whom God used to feed many sons of a prophet through little food. What is more, the Scriptures say that man shall not live by bread alone, and you are great enough to fill this multitude from the words of your mouth." Philip could have had a lot of responses that would have been good uh, and it would come from a recognition of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. But instead, it's like, well, we don't have enough money, Jesus. It's not going to happen. So the second wrong way the disciples respond to their impossible situation is they look to money instead of to Jesus to take care of the impossible situation. You know, unfortunately, I think many of us have the Philip mentality when it comes to impossible situations that we face. We look to money. That's the source. You know, if we have enough, then, then we can deal with this. And if we don't, then we can't. And instead of looking to Jesus, we're, we're looking to money to solve our problems. You know, our culture says money makes the world go round. But that's not true. God makes the world go round. God's the one who's in control. God's the one we need to place our trust in. God's the one we need to look to, not money, to deal with our problems. You know, this test that Jesus placed before Philip is often placed before us as well. There's an impossible situation that he puts before you, and the test is, who are you going to look to? Who are you going to trust? What are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in money? Are you going to trust in some other person? Are you going to trust in yourself? Or are you going to look to me? Are you going to trust in me? And what we need to recognize is, Anything, whether it's money or you or you're some other person, anything that we look to opposed to Jesus is the wrong response. It should be Jesus and Him alone. So the disciples' first wrong response to their impossible situation is they asked Jesus to get rid of it 
The right response would ask him to get them through it. Their second wrong response is to look to money to take care of their impossible situation. The right response would be to look to Jesus to take care of their impossible situation. Well, now we're going to see the third wrong response from Andrew in verses 8 and 9. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So notice that all the disciples hear Jesus' question. They hear Philip's answer. And now Andrew chimes in. Hey, hey, I got something to, to contribute. There's a, there's a young boy here, and he's brought his lunch. He's got five pieces of bread, and he's got two fish. And let's realize, these aren't going to be some monster fish. This is lunch. You know, there's probably little tiny fish and some bread. And, you know, so Philip, uh, or Andrew, shares this information. He almost had it. He almost gave a, a wonderful response, but notice then the but creeps in. But what are they among so many? This boy's willing to offer up his lunch, five pieces of bread, two small fish, but I mean, come on. How is that really going to help this situation? You know, how is that going to feed thousands of people? You see, Andrew gave the wrong response to this impossible situation because he thought the little that was offered couldn't be used by Jesus to meet the impossible need. So the third wrong way the disciples respond to their impossible situation is they thought Jesus couldn't use the little they had to offer instead of realizing that Jesus can use anything they offered to meet the impossible situation. Something important for us to understand is Jesus loves to use the little to do a lot. You know, you read from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see time and time again of Jesus loving to use the little, use the weak, use the insignificant people and things to do great things. And one of the reasons that we see Jesus regularly doing that throughout the scriptures is because then he gets the glory. You know, if the disciples had plenty of money right now and they could have just gone down to the grocery store and bought plenty of food for everyone, Jesus wouldn't have gotten any glory in this situation. Oh, great, you guys have plenty of money to feed us. Wonderful. No, he brings it to this place where now it's either him or nothing. It's he's got to do the impossible and in the midst of that gets the glory to do it. You know, our problem oftentimes when we're faced with impossible situations is we respond like Andrew. We see we have something to offer, but then the but creeps in. We think, well, God, could you really use this little thing? God, I'd love to be used by you, but look at my past. Uh, but I'm not gifted enough. But what I have to offer is so small. But I don't have much experience in this. But I don't know the Bible well enough. But I've only been a Christian for a short time. But, but wouldn't you be better using some other person who's more gifted than me? But, but, but... When faced with impossible situations, we're good at making excuses for why God can't use us. We're good at making excuses for why what we have to offer, God couldn't do anything with. But we need to understand that God is able to use us and to use the little we have to do the impossible. You just need to give it to Him. Lord, here it is. I know it's not much. I know my ability is not much. I know what I have is not much. But I know that you are a God who can take little things and do great things with them. 
The question is, are you willing to respond by saying, Lord, here's the little I have, take it and use it? Or will your response be like Andrew's? Lord, here's what I have, but I mean, come on. What is that going to do with the situation that I'm faced with now? How is that going to help? It's too insignificant. It's too small. The next time you're in an impossible situation and you see that you can contribute something, don't you think to yourself, what good is that going to do? Or how can this small gift or small ability help this huge situation? Just trust God. Lord, here it is. I trust you can multiply it. I trust that you can do something great with it. And I guarantee you'll be pleasantly surprised with what God can do with the little you have to offer. You know, when I was 23 years old, I felt like God was calling me to plant a church in Scotland. And my initial response was like Andrew. Lord, I have a little bit to offer here, but I mean, the magnitude of what you're calling me to is so superior to what I can do. I don't know the first thing really about starting a church and all the intricacies and all that's going on. Lord, surely this isn't what you have for me right now, that there was those thoughts and those things. And, and the Lord just said, you know what? Trust me. Are you willing to trust me in what I've called you to do? Okay. <laughs> I will. I'll take that step and I'll, and I'll do what you've called me to do. And, and from that moment all the way to now, I've always been amazed at what God's able to do with the little I offer to Him. I've discovered that what's important to God is not your ability, it's your availability. You see, God can use you no matter how little your ability is. That doesn't limit Him at all. We think it limits. We think, oh, wow, God, you could never do anything with me. No, he's not limited by your ability in any way, shape, or form. There's only one thing that's going to limit him, and that's the fact that you don't make yourself available. Why? Because he won't force you to be used. He won't force you to serve him. He won't force you to join in what he's trying to do. So he allows you to make yourself available. And if you will make yourself available, he will use whatever ability that you have to offer. But if you don't make yourself available, then you won't be used. So it's not the ability... It's the availability that's the most important thing. So disciples' first wrong response, they want Jesus to get rid of their impossible situation. The right response would be asking Him to get them through it. The second wrong response is they look to money. The right response would be looking to Jesus. And the third wrong response was they didn't think Jesus could use the little they had to offer instead of recognizing that Jesus could use anything that we offer to meet the impossible need. So we started looking at these three wrong ways that the disciples faced this impossible situation and how they respond. But now we're going to see how Jesus responds in verses 10 through 13. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragrance that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So here we see Jesus' response to this impossible situation. The disciples have, have failed in, in recognizing what they'll do. And Jesus starts with saying, you know what? Have the people sit down 
in the grass. And, and you know, I think this is actually a wonderful picture of, of Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We also see he prepares a table before me. You know, there's just a, a wonderful picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, taking care of sheep. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, the, the thing that Andrew thought was too insignificant for him to use. And then Jesus miraculously multiplies them. This five loaves and this two fish, he just keeps multiplying it more and more and more so that it feeds thousands of people. Now, Jesus does two things to help the disciples learn from this miracle, and I think also to remember this miracle. Notice the first thing is that Jesus includes the disciples in the miracle. As he multiplies this bread, he asks his disciples to distribute the miracle bread and the miracle fish to the multitude. Now, Jesus, the miracle man, he could have easily just made it pop into their lap. You know, he didn't have to have the disciples a part of this in any way, shape, or form. He didn't have to have them distribute this, but he wanted to include them in this. And so they watch and they see, wow, this five loaves and two fresh, it just keeps, you know, expanding and growing and, and multiplying it. And they're getting handed this and they're able to go and, and hand it to the people and they're coming back and they're getting more and more. And they're just a part of this miracle which would have just helped them learn and grow. And wow, you know, it's one thing to watch Jesus. It's another thing to actually be a part of it ourselves. And that usually are the things that stick with us and help us learn even more. And Jesus does with that with us so often. Instead of just doing it all on his own, he says, you know what, I, wanna, I want you to join in. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to serve. I want you to take what I'm doing and help influence and impact others. I want you to be a part of the miraculous work that I'm doing. Second, Jesus has his disciples gather the uneaten fragments that remain. And notice that as they collect these uneaten fragments of bread, we're told the amount of baskets full that they gather. Twelve. That's significant. Why? Because there's twelve of them. Each one of them has a basket full of food at the end of all of this. A great reminder of this miracle. And I'm pretty sure that for the next few days, they were probably eating food from that basket. And each time they have a meal, it's a reminder, this is the miracle bread. You know, this is what God multiplied. And so they get to take that away with them as a reminder of what Jesus just did to help that really sink in. So hopefully the next time they're faced with a similar impossible situation, they remember the one who met the need here. They remember how they were used and they remember how it had leftovers even for them to be blessed by. Something so important for us to remember is that we serve a God of the miraculous. There's nothing impossible for Him. There's nothing too difficult for Him to handle. Whatever impossible situation you find yourself in right now, you need to realize Jesus can handle it. Jesus can deal with it. You know, I think one of our problems is that we place our limitations on God. When we encounter a situation that's impossible for us, we think, well, surely it must be impossible for God. Because if I can't handle it, then He can't handle it. Well, what we're doing is we're just taking our limitations, our inabilities, our weaknesses, and we're placing them on God as like He is limited like we are, as He is weak like we are. No, don't do that. God doesn't have those limitations. He doesn't have those weaknesses. Yeah, there's plenty of things that you and I can't do, but that He can. Well, the disciples clearly see that what was impossible for them was not impossible for Jesus. And we need to see that as well to look to Him to meet 
the impossible need. Don't ask him to get rid of it. Don't look to money or something else. Don't think that he can't use the little you have to offer. Just look to him to meet your impossible need. So we see how the disciples respond before this impossible situation. We see how Jesus deals with this impossible situation. And now we're going to finish by looking at the multitude's response after being blessed by Jesus doing something impossible for them. And we're going to see the multitude, just like the disciples, don't respond well. So they're an example of what not to do, but we'll also look at what they should have done. Let's see how they respond in verses 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So when this multitude, they look and they see this amazing miracle of Jesus taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying it for all of them to have as much as they want to eat, they come and they say, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. You know, I think this multitude is starting to get an idea of who this is. They're starting to recognize, well, wait a second, maybe this guy, maybe this Jesus is actually the Messiah, is actually the prophet who was prophesied by Moses. You see, Moses... Back in the time of the Exodus, when God used him to ultimately God miraculously provides manna from heaven, so this miraculous provision of food, Moses then says this in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So when Jesus miraculously feeds this multitude, I think they think back to this prophecy. You know, this is one of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and they connect it. Hey, God miraculously provide manna from heaven. Jesus is miraculously providing food for us. He must be the prophet that was spoken of. And you know what? They were right. This was a good conclusion. This was a right thinking. They went back to the scriptures and recognized it's pointing to Jesus, but their problem was in how they responded to the truth of who Jesus is. You see, they responded the wrong way. We're told that Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So think of this. When the, Messiah, the, 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 the multitude, they, they recognize who Jesus is. They see Jesus do the impossible. They understand he's the Messiah. But instead of responding to Jesus by following him, by worshiping him, by surrendering their life to him as they should have, notice what they do. They try to force Jesus to be their king. You see, they wanted to use Jesus. They wanted to use his power. They wanted to use him to fulfill their agenda and to fulfill their desire because right now their agenda and their desire was we need someone to help us overthrow Rome. We're tired of being under Roman oppression and oh, look at this guy. He's got power. He's perfect. He'd be the perfect one. Let's force him to be our king and then we can then have this revolt and, and then we can be out from under Rome's thumb. That was their agenda, that was their desire, and they looked at Jesus and said, we're going to use you and your power to accomplish the things that we want to do. The wrong response of the multitude to Jesus doing the impossible for them is they tried to force Jesus to be what they wanted him to be and to use Jesus to fulfill their agenda and desires. 
instead of surrendering their lives to Jesus to fulfill His agenda and His desires. You know, unfortunately, when we see Jesus do the miraculous for us, when we recognize the power that Jesus has to bless our lives and impact us, we often respond in the same wrong way as the multitude did. We respond just wanting to use Jesus. Wow, your power is really helpful, Jesus. I'd love for you to do this for me and that for me. And, and instead of surrendering, instead of worshiping, instead of following, it's like, well, what else can you do? Well, what more can you do in my life with your power? How else can I utilize your power for the things in my agenda, for the things that I'm trying to do in life? I grew up in a very charismatic church that focused a lot on God's supernatural power. And I was basically taught, you know what, use God's supernatural power to fulfill your own agenda, your own desires, the things that you want in life. You know, they had these catchphrases that they would use, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, believe it and receive it. What they were teaching was, you know what, all you got to do is just claim the money that you want, it'll be yours. Blab it out, I want that house, God's going to give it to you. Claim these things and they're yours in faith and you, know, you can kind of control God and He has to give you what you want. You know, basically their teaching was God is your personal genie. Use Him to give you what you want. All the money, all the cars, all the houses, all the material blessings of this life, all the, you know, you can be free from any sickness, anything. They just say, hey, all you got to do is claim it. My response to God's supernatural power shouldn't be to try to get Him to fulfill my desires, to fulfill my agenda. My response to God's supernatural power should be to recognize who He is. He's the one who deserves me to surrender my life to Him. It's His agenda, His will that I should be following. When I see His power, it should just show how little I am in comparison to Him, not, wow, I could really use that. That could really help my agenda. That could really spur on what I'm trying to do with my life. Instead of having me change my thinking, Lord, I need to be living for your agenda. I need to be living for your will. And I need to be doing what you want from me. And notice something very important. As Jesus perceives what they're going to do, he knows that they're going to try to take him by force to make him their king, that they're going to seek to use him and his power. Notice what he does. We're told Jesus departed from them. What a sad place for this multitude. He's healing them. He's teaching them. He just provided an amazing meal for them. What a great situation for them to now recognize who He is, to follow Him, to surrender their life to Him, to worship Him, and to stay with Him. But when they try to use Him, when they try to take advantage of His power for their own agenda, notice what He does. He leaves. He's gone. He departs from them because Jesus isn't going to allow Himself to be used by us. He's not going to allow himself and his power to be used for our agenda and our will. It's no, even as he told us to pray, pray his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, a great way to get Jesus to depart and to stop using you, to stop working in your life is start to use him. Try to use his power. Try to get him to focus on your agenda and not his own. And as we see here, he leaves this multitude and goes to the mountain by himself alone. So the wrong response of the multitude to Jesus doing the impossible for them is they try to force Jesus to be what they wanted him to be and to use Jesus to fulfill their agenda and desires. The right response would have been surrendering their lives to Jesus to fulfill his agenda and his desires. 
When Jesus does the impossible in your life, don't try to use him. Don't try to force him into what you're doing. Recognize, I need to follow what he's doing. You know, the reality is that you and I, we face a lot of impossible situations on a regular basis. We come before and then stand in that place where we got to make a, we have to respond. You know, what am I going to do when this impossible situation is here? And also, what am I going to do now that Jesus has done the impossible in my life? Because he does that a lot, which is great for us. So we have many opportunities to respond before and after Jesus meets our impossible need. And hopefully what we've looked at this morning has given us four great challenges to how we should and shouldn't respond before and after Jesus meets our impossible needs. First, don't ask Jesus to get rid of the impossible situation. Instead, ask Jesus to get you through it. Second, don't look to money or anything else to take care of your impossible situation. Instead of look to Jesus to take care of it. Third, don't think Jesus can, can't use the little you have to offer to meet your impossible need. Instead, realize Jesus can use anything you offer, so offer it to Him. And fourth, don't force Jesus to be what you want Him to be and try and force Him to fulfill your agenda and desires. Instead, surrender your life to Jesus to fulfill His agenda and His desires. So the next time you're faced with an impossible situation, the next time Jesus does the impossible for you, my encouragement to you, my encouragement to myself, is that we would put these things into practice, that we would recognize the proper way to respond and to respond the way that God wants us to. Let's pray.